Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. There have been more than 80 mass shootings in the United States so far this year. That's according to the Gun Violence Archive. But gun violence isn't just limited to mass shootings. Every day, hundreds of Americans are shot in murders, suicides, and more. In Connecticut, we have some of the strongest gun laws in the United States. And yet, gun violence continues to rock communities across the state. And while Governor Ned Lamont has put forward a comprehensive and ambitious gun safety agenda, Second Amendment groups are already pushing back. Joining us now on where we live for a discussion on gun safety in Connecticut, I've got in person, sitting to my left, uh, Mark Pazniokas with the uh, CT Mirror and and a great Capitol uh, reporter, Capitol Bureau Chief for CT Mirror. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be back in the studio. Yeah, this is like a a, a new thing uh, in the post-COVID world, uh, in-person interview. We are a tenant in your building. Our newsroom is one floor above where we're sitting. So So we cheated today. (laughs) And joining me on the phone, the great editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie, Christine Stewart. Good morning, Christine. Good morning, Frankie. Are you feeling jealous that I didn't invite you to the studio now that uh, I've got Mark to my left? No, you actually did invite me to the studio, and I was unable to make it. So, oh, that's that's very good, and, and I think yeah, we only got like that. a couple of mics anyway, so I think it works out. If exactly. you're listening to this conversation, you can join us eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven eight 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 seven two zero WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mark, more than ten years since the mass shooting at Sandy Hook School, the most devastating shooting that there's that there's been and that that there's been around us here in Connecticut's changed everything. What were some of the gun laws that were passed in Connecticut in the aftermath? Well, the biggest one was the the next year, which was a bipartisan bill which uh, achieved some of the things that Senator Chris Murphy, quite frankly, is trying to do federally. And and the the big one was uh, universal background checks to purchase firearms and ammunition. Uh, they also uh, revised a 1993 uh, so-called assault weapon ban, um, which was something of a failure in that the original law banned 60 or so uh, firearms by brand name, which is a very difficult way to legislate because the model numbers and names change. So in after Sandy Hook, they went to describing the aspects, the features of firearms. So you know, those were the, the two big things that came out of, of Sandy Hook. But the universal background checks, uh, you know, I think is something that has been very uh, effective in Connecticut. Uh, at the top, you did talk about the the continuing spikes in urban violence that we see. But people should also know that Connecticut, uh, from year to year, tends to be in the top 10 as far as the fewest gun deaths in the United States. Christine, so it sounds like what we have now, based on what we talked about with Mark, is we got universal background checks, 
We got a ban on high capacity magazines. There's the assault weapons ban and permits for firearms and ammunition that you have to have. Uh, Mark just hit on the fact that he feels that they've been in, in effect. They've been effective here of gun laws in Connecticut and gun control. But this did lead to some weapons uh, being grandfathered in, as I understand it, into that bill from the 1994 ban that we had about 80,000 weapons or so. Um, yeah, so those, um, you know, those pre-ban weapons are, are, are currently legal to buy and sell in Connecticut and include AR-style rifles with features like pistol grips and flash suppressors that were, that were later outlawed by this post-Sandy Hook law. So, uh, you know, Lamont is trying to close what he believes um, is a loophole in that law in addition to a handful of other things like banning open carry, um, limiting handgun purchases to one per month, and updating the the registration system for for ghost guns. But I just have to say that, you know, um, I spoke with with Chris Murphy uh, a few weeks ago, and his push at the national level for the universal background check is because even though Connecticut does have what people consider strong gun laws, Without a national um, universal background check system, there there's still this leakage. So uh, Hartford Police Chief Jason Thody said that there's a misconception that all the crimes, um, you know, are, all the guns used in crimes are stolen, but only 16% of the guns on Hartford streets are stolen. Um, so that means that, you know, of the 367 guns used in crimes in Hartford, 58 were ghost guns, but 250 were purchased or transferred to a seller somewhere else in some other state and ended up in Hartford. This is such an important topic, so important that we've brought Chip Brownlee in for the next segment. Spoiler alert, we're going to talk to Chip about this on this very point that Christine made. Mark, let's fast forward to the present moment here. Governor Ned Lamont Something that uh, Christine was just talking about uh, was was this effort to re-register the uh, assault weapons that were grandfathered in. Also, I understand that that ghost guns, unregistered ghost guns, are going to be uh, targeted in this session. What are ghost guns, and why are they a problem? Ghost guns are are weapons that can be assembled at home, three um, D printed, or purchased uh, parts that are purchased and then assembled. And the problem is they don't have serial numbers. Now it's legal to do that in Connecticut. You can be a hobbyist. You can build your own gun, um, but you're supposed to go to the state and get a serial number and make sure that's etched in the gun. And you know, as Christine just noted about the ghost guns that are recovered in Hartford. Um, that is a growing problem. When that law was passed in Connecticut, it appeared to be a solution in search of a problem. There really were not a lot of ghost guns being found. Well, a few years later, it's now law enforcement says it is a huge problem. It is it is really part of the flow of guns into Connecticut. And so there's really no way to enforce the current law because the uh, guns that were made before the ban were grandfathered. But if you don't have a serial number on a gun, how do you know when it was made? So it really it really made the law unenforceable. And that's the complaints of prosecutors. This so-called iron pipeline, you have guns coming through this iron pipeline into Connecticut. And it's not always 
something that's convenient because it's it's not something you want to hear when we talk about gun violence. You want to hear like, oh, it's because the gun comes from the other state. But this is legit what people are dealing with. It's causing everyday gun violence. And speaking of everyday gun violence, community violence intervention programs is something I want to ask Christine about. How do programs like that kind of uh, seek to address gun violence in Connecticut, Christine? Well, I mean, they, they seek to make sure that there, there's no um, retaliation and to make sure that, you know, guns don't end up um, in, in the hands of people um, just because um, they want to retaliate against somebody for, for something or they feel that they have to have a, a gun for protection, um, you know, so that some of these, um, these beefs on the street between these kids um, don't end up happening. And I think that there is bipartisan support to, um, you know, increase funding for, for some of these programs. There, there is no opposition to violence intervention programs, uh, even from Second Amendment groups. Um, so I think that that's definitely something that's, that's probably going to, to pass this year. The flip side of that coin is trying to focus on just what she is saying, focus on where it is occurring. And, you know, so the thing you have to understand about gun violence in in Connecticut, first off, one of the reasons that overall the rates are low, it's not just these, uh, the gun bills we talked about. There's also things like risk warrants. Connecticut was the first state to do these risk warrants, these red flag laws, which allow police uh, uh, health providers and families to get guns away from people who may be uh, in crisis, one you know, one form or another. And and the feeling is the states that have those laws, that's where you also have the lowest number of gun uh, of gun uh, deaths. Um, but the community that that Christine was talking about, you know, basically the chief state's attorney said the other day that seventy percent of gun victims and 70% of shooters, they're really in a tight cohort of people who have felony convictions. They tend to be young and they tend to be male and urban. And there is also an effort going on that was pushed by the mayors to really tighten the laws regarding bail, of trying to really focus on this smaller community that is responsible for a lot of the violence. Um, The chief state's attorney said basically almost 80 percent of gun gun violence, uh, fatal and non-fatal, occurs in the cities of Bridgeport, Hartford, New Haven, and Waterbury. So this is an idea of trying to get focused on the enforcement side. But this got really politicized because there was, it, it came down to a lot of it was probation and and uh, more parole. Parole, and, probation, and, and, and bail. And you cannot, ba- you cannot deny bail in Connecticut under the Constitution. Uh, in federal court, you can. Somebody, if somebody is deemed a threat, they can be denied bail. So this gets a little bit more complicated. We don't want to get too way into the weeds, but basically it would be making sure the bail bondsmen can't give these discount uh, rates to get to get these guys out. Um, it's it's about the use of bail bonds, about what percentage you should have to put up, and that is the legal window that they're trying to go through and tighten that law. That bill has not been filed yet. What the mayor's proposed is being drafted now. It's in the Legislative Commissioner's office, I'm told. So we'll see ultimately how that comes out and how it plays in a General Assembly that has been 
wary about tightening, um, you know, about having uh, more onerous uh, punishments and, and whatnot. But go ahead. And, and I, think, I think what we're kind of pointing to, Christine, is that things have gotten exacerbated in the pandemic, at least early on in the pandemic when it comes to gun violence, right? Is that there was this push that we had from, from like Marcus talking about, these local mayors. I think Aaron Stewart was a big one uh, in this one. And it, the issue did get politicized, but the issue of gun violence becoming uh, a, a little bit of a spike here in the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and gun violence did spike, but I mean, if you if you look at um, gun gun deaths overall, most of the gun deaths um, over the past decade um, have been suicide deaths. So I think that having the risk warrant and the red flag laws already established in Connecticut for for decades has been helpful to make sure that people. I mean, if you choose to use a gun to commit suicide. Um, you're most likely to succeed uh, in in that purpose, and so most of um, the gun deaths in Connecticut are are still largely suicide. You, That's about sixty percent. You already mentioned open carry before. What, where does the Lamont administration stand on this? What are we talking about in terms of open carry for new legislation? Well, Lamont is looking to ban open carry, and in Connecticut, the law is basically gray, and it doesn't say anything necessarily about open carry. So um, he wants to ban open carry. Um, You know, he says that it would prevent the intimidation of residents at certain locations, Mm -hmm. um, such as polling places or or protest. Um, And this, you know, the Second Amendment groups say that this isn't something that's necessarily happening. And most people don't open carry in Connecticut. Um, The people who do, according to Holly Sullivan of the Connecticut um, uh, Citizens Defense League are are those who are handicapped, and so that there's no way to um, to holster the gun in in any way or or keep the gun hidden. This has been a big piece of legislation that has been floated around the community that survived the Sandy Hook shooting since I think 2013, something like that. Right after the shooting happened, the Newtown Action Alliance has pushed for a ban on open carry because of this idea of intimidation, Mark. And I think you covered it in one of your stories, but this idea that you would go to a protest or some kind of social justice rally and people would be walking around with a with their with the open carry, you could see the gun and the holster kind of thing on their leg. We have not seen a lot of that in Connecticut, to okay. be honest. Right? I mean, there have been some very provocative uh, demonstrations staged in other states, including um, you know dozens of people entering the state capitol in Wisconsin, carrying uh, long arms and and, and uh, pistols. And you, I think it's easy to say that that was meant to intimidate. Um, we have not seen that in Connecticut. Connecticut, um, at the Capitol, for example, firearms are banned um, if you're not law enforcement. Uh, and uh, But the broader question on that is, is it also help law enforcement? If you see somebody with a, a pistol tucked in their waist, you under this proposal, an officer would have the right to go and demand to see, all right, do you have a permit? You know, explain how you have the gun. And as Christine said, right now it's a gray area. You, you, we did have an incident uh, in a New Haven movie theater not long after the movie theater shooting in Colorado where somebody had a, an open carry uh, handgun. 
and the police were called, and he refused to show a, a permit. And it became this question of, okay, how do we determine what's going on here? Um, there is you, a police can arrest somebody for breach of peace, but that's a subjective thing about are you, uh, again, breaching the peace or are you asserting your, your right to carry a gun under state law that is silent as to whether or not you need to show a permit? You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Call in if you want to join this conversation. I'm with Mark Pazniokas, who's in studio. He's to my left right now. He's from the Connecticut Mirror. And from CT News Junkie on the line right now is Christine Stewart. Call us if you want to talk, 888-720-WNPR. And I just want to uh, go to a clip that I want to play for, for Mark and Christine right now. It comes from Mike Lawler. He's a professor at the University of New Haven. He's a criminal justice expert because he was actually undersecretary for criminal justice in the governor uh uh, Daniel Malloy administration. I can't. I forgot his name already. Look at that. Look how far removed we are from Daniel Malloy. Please play the clip. Much of the political back and forth um, centers around concerns that somehow guns are going to be universally banned in our state. And uh, in my experience, no one has ever even come close to pr- proposing anything like that. It's important for people to keep in mind that in addition to the Second Amendment in the United States Constitution, in our own state of Connecticut Constitution. It says explicitly citizens have the right to keep and bear arms in defense of themselves in the state. You guys want to react to that? I'll start with Mark. Go ahead. Yeah. And, you know, Murphy and others try to make a similar argument, which is the Supreme Court in the Hiller case has resolved the question of does the Second Amendment uh, to the U.S. Constitution uh, guarantee the right to possess firearms. And that is the court's interpretation. It's not just in a well-regulated militia. But to Mike Lawler's larger point, that is a talking point quite often that that these things will put the state on the slippery slope to seizing guns. Now, the governor during his last campaign actually raised that kind of prospect. He quickly backed off from it. Um, because there are Democratic legislators who said this is not a road you want to go down. But during the campaign, he got tired of uh, Bob Stefanowski um, saying he was weak on crime. And Stefanowski kept suggesting that the police accountability bill somehow had contributed to the murders of those two Bristol police officers whose sources say were were killed by somebody using a legally owned AR-15 or similar uh, rifle. Um, so Lamont said, if you're so concerned about guns, let's end the grandfather provision. Let's have those guns be surrendered. And, and, and as Mike Lawler said, that is a line that Connecticut and other states have never crossed. That is an explosive thing to do. And that's why uh, that did not end up in any of the governor's bills that are before the legislature. Christine, can you pivot off of Mark? Can you kind of talk about the challenges that are ahead for this administration on guns? Well, I mean, I, th- I think the biggest challenge is is closing what Lamont believes is is the loophole in the the 2013 law. I mean, he looks to you know, so assault weapons, assault weapon ban refers to center fire weapons or guns with a firing pin that strikes a primer in the center of an ammunition casing base. The new proposal is seeking to broaden this language to include rimfire weapons which strike the um, primer of the casing's rim. So 
I, I mean, the 2013 law, I, it was, you know, really difficult for them to find bipartisan agreement on it. And they really struggled with that. And I think that by, you know, looking to to ban um, to ban more of these weapons uh, is not going to it's not going to fly with lawmakers. And I I really, I don't think that lawmakers are necessarily um, focused on on this issue. I would say that, you know, inflation and the economy and affordable housing are are topping the agenda this year. And and gun policy is uh, way far down on that list. Real quick thought. Yeah. And the importance of the center fire ammunition, if if listeners who aren't into guns, that tends to be the more high-velocity, high-powered ammunition, um, such as two, two, three rounds that AR-15s fire and that were used at Sandy Hook to devastating effect. Christine, I can listen to you talk about rimfire weapons uh, all day. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. I appreciate it. And thank you guys for joining me here. I had Mark in studio and Christine on the phone. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. Thank you guys for joining us. More on what's happening with gun laws in Connecticut and beyond after the break. If you want to call us, 888-720-WNPR is the number. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Frankie Graziano. So far today, we looked at the state of gun reform in Connecticut, which has some of the strongest gun laws in the United States. Now we're going to zoom out a little bit and see what's happening at the federal level. And joining us now, we have a great guest for you here, Chip Brownlee, a reporter at The Trace, a nonprofit newsroom focused on gun violence. Good morning, Chip. Hey, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for for having us. And and, uh, just before I I pivot to you, I just want to say that 888-720-WNPR, it's 888-720-9670. Seven seven is the number to call us if you want to participate. I think naturally the first question I want to ask you comes off of something Christine talked about earlier uh, in the show. Christine Stewart joined us, a CT News junkie. She said that really uh, some of the local uh, police officers and lawmakers in the state of Connecticut are talking about, yeah, you know, Connecticut's got great gun laws, but they're only as good as the other states that are around you. 
and maybe even some of the other states in the United States that have more uh, loose restrictions on, on on gun weapons. What could you what, what can you say about that that statement from Christine and some of the some of the concern that lawmakers and, and local law enforcement have? Right. I mean, that's definitely the case. I mean, we've seen um, all over the country um, that, you know, a state can have as strong of gun laws as it wants. But if its neighboring states have weak gun laws, um, borders are porous and people travel between states. So if you can, um, I'm in New York, for example. So if you can pretty easily buy a gun in Pennsylvania, it's not that hard to just bring it right across uh, the state line and um, either sell it illegally in New York or use it illegally here. Um, there's no, there's no border checks between states. So, uh, it's, it's not hard to bring those things across. And in New York, for example, I'm not sure about Connecticut specifically, but in New York, for example, um, something like more than 80% of, uh, crime guns in the state come from out of state. Um, and so New York can have very strong gun laws, but it's easy to get guns into the state from elsewhere. What are we seeing in in the interim while we don't have these federal gun laws? What are we seeing states do to kind of, I don't know, team up to try to avoid guns getting into this sort of iron pipeline that we've been talking about? Yeah, so we are seeing states try to do things. So in the Northeast, for example, Governor Hochul in New York put together kind of an interstate task force um, with Connecticut, with Pennsylvania, New Jersey, some other states um, that's trying to tackle some of these gun trafficking issues. Uh, what they're essentially trying to do is share information on like where the guns are coming from, uh, how to better trace them, intelligence on how to track the guns, how they're being used, etc. Um, I think, you know, we could see that eventually have an effect. Um, but as governors of these Northeast states, there's not much that they can do uh, to, you know, strengthen the gun laws in Virginia and Ohio and Georgia where many of the crime guns originate um, because those states have weaker gun laws and their background checks um, are just kind of the bare minimum um, that the federal law requires. Um, so the governors can try to enhance the law enforcement capabilities that they have to track the guns and keep them from being used, but they can't really go at the source because they can't really control the other states that are being the sources of the guns. So what about the the relation between federal and, and state laws? Do they supersede uh, state laws, or is it really what's happening in states is, is the lay of the land? Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, the f- federal laws kind of form the basis of the gun laws in the country. So there is a bare minimum requirement for um, federally licensed gun dealers to perform background checks. Um, so that's true in every state. So if you go to a federally licensed gun dealer, which most gun stores are federally licensed, they have to be, um, you're going to get a background check there, for example. Um, but in many states, uh, there are still, you know, private sales allowed without background checks that federal law doesn't touch. Now, some states have taken steps to put in universal background checks. Um, so they're going above and beyond kind of the federal minimum requirement, um, Another example is, you know, federal law sets in place some kind of basic prohibitions on who can and who cannot have guns. For So, for example, um, if you're if you've been convicted of a felony, you're not allowed to have a gun. That's a federal law. But, you know, some states can go above and beyond that. Um, and some states have. Uh, that's where you get into things like red flag laws that uh, some states, uh, Connecticut was the first to do it that you know is a way to take guns away from people who pose a 
um, a threat to themselves or others. Uh, but I think, you know, we've seen as strong as the movement uh, for gun reform has gotten really since Sandy Hook, um, there have been steps taken to put in place things like red flag laws in many states. On the flip side of that, the, there's also been a very strong movement in conservative states among pro-gun advocates to weaken gun laws, and that's been as strong, if not stronger in some ways, than the, the movement for gun reform. Chip Brownlee is a reporter at The Trace. In a minute, we're going to talk about the gun measures that that currently exist at the federal level, and we'll talk about some efforts to try to strengthen gun control in the United States. But first, we do have a caller on the line that's going to join us and wants to talk about the way that we talk about gun-related suicide. We have Tim from Higginham on the line. Tim, what's your question this morning? Go ahead, Tim. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I lost a, a very close family member to suicide about 10 months ago. I'm sorry and, to hear, uh, Tim. It, it was, it's been very difficult. Um, uh, one thing I learned from the process of uh, facing that and, and trying to cope with it is that when we talk about suicide and we say someone has committed suicide, it, it uh, lends a, um, a criminal implication to the act rather than addressing the, um, the terrible... Um, uh, circumstances that led to it. And so it's actually more helpful for survivors of suicide and their family members to refer to it as a completed suicide. Just wanted to share that to raise awareness. Thank you. And, and again, Tim, I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you for joining us on Where We Live this morning. Chip, uh, anything you have to say about the way that we talk about the gun deaths nationally and maybe any kind of legislation that's inspired that or, or, or that's been inspired by that? Yeah, I mean, I think when you when we often think about gun violence, and I think the thing that immediately comes to people's mind is you know murder and homicide, but the majority of gun deaths in in the U.S. are suicides. Um, so last year there were more than twenty four thousand suicides compared to like twenty thousand um, homicides. So that is a big issue that often kind of goes unaddressed when we talk about gun violence. There are some things. Um, that can help, you know, uh, and red flag laws, for example, there's actually stronger evidence that red flag laws can help prevent suicide than there is, you know, that they have an effect on, on, uh, homicide and murders. Um, so there are steps that, that can be taken. Some other things are things like safe storage laws that can prevent, you know, kids and teenagers from being able to access guns. There's, there's strong evidence to say that those, um, types of laws can prevent suicides as well. I very much appreciate your answer, Chip, because it was really important, I thought, to get uh, Tim's call in because of what he wanted yeah. to talk about. So thank you so much for that. And, yeah. and, and that leads me to this. When you talk about red flag legislation, recently Congress made it so that states can start to get some funding for red flag legislation. It sounded like in the aftermath of the mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, we right. saw the first real significant federal gun legislation in three decades. Why was that such an important milestone, this bipartisan Safer Communities Act? Um, I think it, it was an important milestone because it it did do something. Um, I think for a long time we thought, you know, Congress is deadlocked. They're never going to do anything on, on gun reform. And um, them being able to get that bill passed last year, thanks in large part to Senator Murphy, um, 
it showed that Congress can take some action on this issue. And I think it did reinvigorate some hope um, that there could be, you know, more changes in the future. I don't know that there's going to be any more immediate uh, changes like in the next year or two. I think that's pretty unlikely, but um, it did show that Congress can take action. And I think the law is going to have some effects. It strengthened background checks, especially for people that are under 21. It essentially put in place um, waiting periods for for people that are under 21. Um, you know, it it did it took some steps to close the boyfriend uh, loophole that was present in some of our domestic violence laws around gun violence. Yes, we talk so much have. about we talk so much about suicide, but there's also the yeah. domestic violence component as well. Uh, these gun deaths happening to people so close within the shooter. Yeah, I mean, most gun deaths happen, you know, between people that know each other. Um, really, about a third of the you know homicides that happen in the U.S. are some in some way related to to domestic violence whether that be between partners or between you know close family members um and so there are definitely steps that could be taken you know to address some of those uh loopholes that are still still in place um nationally when it comes to like domestic violence laws so besides the, sure. so besides this legislation that took 30 years what do we really have at the federal level um Right now, I don't think we're going anywhere in the next year or two that with mm. Republicans in control of Congress. Uh, it's unlikely that they're going to agree to any new federal gun laws. Um, we still have the basic bed, you know, bedrock uh, gun laws that are in place, um, the minimum background check requirements, for example. Uh, but on the flip side of that, last year there was the ruling in um, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, which basically expanded... Uh, you know, the Supreme Court's interpretation of gun rights and said, um, not only do you have a right to have a gun in your home for self-defense, you also have uh, a constitutional right to carry a loaded gun in public. And we're seeing that reverberate across uh, different states and affect different federal laws. For example, there's just tons of court cases right now that, you know, we could see major changes coming down the pipeline. Um, I think so. I think the biggest movement on the federal level right now is the impacts of that Supreme Court case that we're going to be seeing over the next few years. I'm imagining this like I'm playing poker and I got my hand that I got. I'm playing against the house. Then you got <laughs> it sounds like the Supreme Court that you have to worry about. You got to worry about now the uh, the Senate filibuster. Then you also have the House changing uh, majority rule it looks like the the republicans have a have an advantage in the house now so if you're looking for gun legislation i, I think this is relevant to the conversation sorry to get poker in here but it's relevant yeah. <laughs> to the conversation because if you're a chris murphy and you're looking to pass some universal background legislation we talked about in the last segment something that you're familiar with here this universal background check legislation that would be in the federal government you, you've really got the deck stacked against you yeah I mean, there's uh, he I was actually at an event yesterday where Senator Murphy spoke and he, he was asked essentially about the universal background check legislation that he's brought forward for years. Um, and if it had there was any possibility that it could go through this year and he um, and and not so many words basically said no. Um, I, I think it's just very hard to get anything through Congress on guns right now. Um, because of Republican control in the House and because Democrats don't have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. And even though things like universal background checks have 
80, 85, 90, 95% support, depending on which poll you look at, Republicans just don't support it. And the main reason that's the case is because they're, you know, trying to appeal to their base um, in their primary elections. And those base voters in primary elections, especially, you know, on the Republican side, um, don't support any changes to gun laws uh, because they view it as a slippery slope towards, you are talking earlier about um, gun seizures and, you know, whether you could fully ban guns. Um, they think anything, even a background check, is is a step towards that, um, even though that's not the case. And we've seen with the Supreme Court rulings that, if anything, um, the Supreme Court has strengthened gun rights. It's harder now for states to pass gun regulations because of that ruling. Um, over the past 10 years, most states have weakened their gun laws. Um, that's another thing we could talk about is permitless carry. Uh, most states in the country now allow people to carry guns without a permit and public loaded. Um, that was just not true 20, 30 years ago, um, that it's true now. So uh, if anything, you know, a, a lot of states have weakened their gun laws. Um, and so the, the cards are kind of stacked against people who are trying to get gun reform through. We're winding down here. I got a couple of things I want to say just really quickly at the federal yeah. level. Our our senators from Connecticut, we mentioned Chris Murphy talking about a background check bill, but these guys are, are really invested in gun violence legislation because of the Sandy Hook school shooting that happened 10 years ago that they were both uh, – responding to the scene that day at the firehouse u.s senators from connecticut chris murphy and richard blumenthal saying they want to introduce the federal assault weapons ban and separately they're calling for a federal law to raise the age you can purchase assault weapons from 18 to 21 kind of sounds utopian at this point chip but i just want to give you this one last thing here this poll a new poll from gallup shows that 63 percent of americans are dissatisfied with u.s gun laws a new high why is there such a disconnect between the public and the people that represent them in Congress? I think there's a couple of things. One is the influence of the gun lobby. Um, we've seen that you know weakened over the last decade. Um, the NRA has lost a lot of members and money, but I mean, there's still a strong lobbying force. Um, I, but I think the main thing, again, goes back to you know polarization, um, you know, uh, gerrymandering, the way that we run primaries in this country. There's just really not an incentive for Republicans to come to the table on gun laws. Even even last year, um, when they were debating the gun law, uh, the the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, um, the senator from Texas, who was kind of the Republican uh, in charge of that, being the kind of Republican in those negotiations, um, went home and basically got attacked for participating uh, in those negotiations. So there's just not an incentive for Republicans to come to the table. Um, I think something like an assault weapons ban, President Biden has promised to keep pushing for that. But until there's some kind of change in the composition of Congress, I, I just don't I don't see how that could that could get through. Yeah, a lot to be a lawmaker nowadays as, as a lot of the sentiment that was around January 6th seemed to be around gun laws. And, and this insurrection is kind of a philosophy. It, it seemed that it was a lot of that paranoia of guns being taken away is kind of what uh, led folks to Washington on January 6th. So a lot going on yes. for lawmakers, a lot going on at The Trace, if you could check it out. Chip Brownlee, thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.
Thank you to Chip, and thank you to folks that are calling in today, 888-720-9677, if you want to get a hold of us today. We're going to move away from guns and talk about Medicaid next on Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. We got to pivot away from the gun laws and legislation to something else that affects Connecticut residents in a major way. In the coming weeks, thousands of nutmeggers, especially low-income residents, understand that individuals with disabilities as well are expected to lose Medicaid coverage if they don't act soon. But why exactly is that happening? Ning, and what can these people do to answer those questions and more? I am so blessed today. Had a guest uh, in studio earlier in the A segment, and now we're joined by one of my favorite colleagues, Sujata Srinivasan, our Connecticut public uh, health reporter. Good morning, Frankie. Right back at you, one of my favorite colleagues. So the first thing to know is not to panic. We've had more than enough panic these three years, and the state uh, has many safety nets. But the thing to do is, like you rightly pointed out, start taking action. So um, the last three years, uh, folks, many folks, thousands of folks were enrolled um, as Medicaid beneficiaries, and they were continuously enrolled. Um, And that's because in 2020, Congress put in place the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. States were required to continuously um, enroll people for Medicaid coverage, regardless of eligibilities. So otherwise, they would have um, come up for redetermination or the process uh, to qualify for Medicaid coverage. So regardless of people's income status, let's say somebody um, got a better job, you know, got more income, doesn't matter. They were continuously enrolled for Medicaid regardless of their um, uh, income criteria and eligibility criteria. Now that's coming to an end March 31st, and it's coming up for 430,000 nutmeggers. And there's like, this is going to happen over the next year, this process of play out. There's the deadline, but then there's 12 months here of this sort of unwinding. Absolutely. And it has to be that way because people are not going to wake up April 1st and go, oh, gosh, where's my coverage? No, it's not going to be that way. But um, the first step is to notify the Department of Social Security if people have had an address change. Um, And uh, DSS has put out ads uh, the last couple of uh, weeks, uh, more than a month actually, intensified in areas uh, where Medicaid uh, recipients are are concentrated. So New Haven, uh, Hartford, and Bridgeport. They have an Update Us So We Can Update You campaign. It's all over the place, including buses and signages. So that's the first step because some of these people haven't been in contact with DSS for three years now. <laughs> and DSS needs um, the addresses because individuals are going to be contacted by DSS. They'll be given a date by which to respond manually to renew coverage. So that's the important process. And I spoke with Jennifer Tolbert, uh, who is a Medicaid analyst for um, the Kaiser Family Foundation. And that's the biggest concern in this process, that there are going to be people who uh, will lose their Medicaid uh, coverage, even though they are eligible, just because they have not notified their addresses. 
So I just want to underscore this. If you are someone you know, we're going to say this a couple of times, if you if you are someone you know is in danger of losing coverage, you can visit portal.ct.gov backslash update USDSS, portal.ct.gov update USDSS. This renewal process that we're talking about, if you changed your address, you want to make sure that you know you let DSS know, but this is because they have like a passive renewal process, right? Yeah, there's a passive renewal process, and the DSS told me that this year they expect about a 9% increase um, in people that cannot be passively determined as being eligible. So that volume is going to go up. So and you that's said, man, so that's the, the the computerized renewal process. Yes. So you said, and and I and as I understand it, after that, they're they're hoping that they're they're able to address DSS will hopefully address this as well. But the rest of them, but this is something like you said, four hundred and thirty-five thousand people in Connecticut that are affected, and we really want to pinpoint it. We want to drill down on it. Who's the most uh, impacted population? Would you say? Well, for Medicaid, it's going to be um, uh, people of color. Um, definitely children, but also in this cohort, um, going to be people whose income, uh, fortunately, has uh, r- uh, risen during the pandemic and are no longer eligible. Now, these people who will not qualify uh, for Medicaid, they have other options available for them. So for people who are affected, um, it's, it's time to start thinking about transitional medical assistance. Uh, it's going to be 12 months uh, of uh, medical coverage um, provided for people who lost Husky A coverage. And there's Covered Connecticut program. Now, that's also administered by the uh, DSS and Covered Connecticut. The state's going to pay all premium and all copay. So if a person is eligible uh, for zero premium, and that's you know people earning up to 175% of the federal poverty level, which is about 30,000 for a family of four now, they will be eligible for the covered Connecticut program. And then of course, uh, the, the plans on the uh, state healthcare exchange. DSS, what are they doing in all of this? There's some kind of campaign. I think it's at that website that I sent uh, folks to, but there's some kind of campaign they have maybe with, with billboards and something happening in Bridgeport, as I understand it. Yeah, so there are, there's this campaign. I mean, the first step is, you know, update us, update you, and, you know, the DSS is trying to get everyone to update their addresses. That's the first step. But even um, it's important to follow up. You know, make sure that if they don't hear back from people to follow up, um, that's important. DSS also at a February hearing, uh, public hearing, um, Jennifer Marsochi of DSS in February said that they've hired more people um, to man the call centers, uh, given the call volume. I mean, to handle all this, I mean, this is going to be, you know, the, the volumes and the fact that people are transitioning to other um, uh, health uh, uh, coverages and the fact that, you know, we don't want people to fall through the gaps and miss coverage for that period of time. Um, so they are increasing the staffing. So the concern is to train the staff if they are new, and um, to follow up with people if they don't hear back, and, and to ensure that uh, the, the pacing of the process you know, goes smoothly, uh, as smoothly as few people falling through the gaps, which is inevitable. I'm so happy that you came on to talk about this, and I'm so, exo- uh, so excited that our producer, Meg Dalton, wanted to talk about this, because there's that urgency, right, March 31st, and you're talking generally about people who are on Husky A and Husky D, is that correct? Correct. So uh, I, I, I just want to I just want to underscore how important it is to, for folks to, to visit this website if they may be impacted. Portal.ct.gov/slash/update 
USDSS. And folks, if it doesn't really work as well, we know how sometimes state systems can be. Please let us know so in the next month or so we can follow up on this and try to help you out. You could also reach out to Sujata. Give us your email address so people could send tips if they need to. Oh, gosh. So um, it's S. Srinivasan. That's S. S as in Sam. R as in Robert. I as in Inc. N as in Nancy. I as in Inc. V as in Victor. A as in America. S as in Sam. A as in America. N as in Nancy at ctpublic.org. Um, if you have questions, if you have concerns, if you're having trouble, that's what we are here for, um, to to inquire and to make sure that the sm- uh, the, it's, there's accountability and everything goes smoothly. Sujata and I both have long names, so we're really f- fluent in the phonetic alphabet. Uh, really quickly, I do want to play something. I'm going to play a clip in a second. I want to talk about not only this wind- unwinding scenario, but the politics and how Medicaid has been mm. politicized. Here's Joe Courtney, U.S. Congressman from Connecticut. Aside from the unwinding of the pandemic um, system, I mean, we're about to enter into what I would describe as a very nasty um, debate, uh, budget debate, um, in terms of um, proposals now with the new majority in the House that um, could really threaten um, the existing levels of uh, Medicaid um, scope and eligibility. This is our last question of the day, Sujata. What are your thoughts on what uh, Congressman Courtney just said? It's a real concern. I mean, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, Republican-controlled House, um, you know, we've taken I took a look at the federal, um, uh, the Republican Study Committee's roadmap that they put out um, last year, and uh, Georgetown policy analyst Edwin Park has uh, concerns um, that, you know, that they haven't really spelled out how this could play out, but you know, in sort of some sort of exchange to raise the debt ceiling, it could be, uh, you know, it could be exchanged for some budget cuts that includes, you know, Medicaid block grants. So Connecticut, you know, all states receive, you know, some some federal assistance um, as well as state uh, for for to provide Medicaid, and for Connecticut, it's fifty six percent of whatever the cost of uh, providing Medicaid coverage is. So whatever the cost, it's fifty six percent of it that could be capped. So that's that's one option. Um, or the other is to eliminate provider taxes, you know, which is basically something like what hospitals and healthcare services uh, pay to finance Medicaid and states uh, do that. So that's something that was outlined in the Republican Study Committee. Um, and um, that's that's a concern. Thank you so much for Sujata to come on today. This Again, this is going to be a very important issue for people to po- follow. If you or someone you know is in danger of losing coverage, you can visit portal.ct.gov backslash update USDSS. Thank you, for Sujata, for joining us today on Where We Live. Today's show produced by Meg Dalton. Our first show together, here we freaking go. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Thank you for listening to Where We Live Today.